Hello and welcome to the Mindset and Self Mastery Show. I'm your host, Nick McGowan, and on this show, my guests and I unpack the stories that shape us and the lives that we lead on our path to self-mastery. So let's not wait any longer. Let the games begin. Hey, Mike, welcome to the show. How you doing, man? Nick, thank you very much for having me. I'm well. Perfect. Well, I'm glad that you're here. I appreciate your team reaching out to me. Uh, I'm excited to get into everything. We were kind of shooting the breeze a little bit before this, and I'm sure we're going to have a great conversation. So why don't you give us some context? Tell us one thing you do for a living and one thing that most people don't know about you. So what I do for a living at its most basic level is I help people who find themselves in need of help. So the answer of two things most people or one thing most people don't know about me, I'm going to give you the serious and I'm going to give you the not so serious. So most people who, uh, what probably most people don't know about me is I spent about a year of my life as a lawyer wondering if I was gonna go to federal prison. That's the serious. The not so serious part, while I look like an NPR dream donor, I absolutely love metal music. Tool, Black Sabbath, um, Metallica, anything like that. Anything my late mother, God rest her soul, would say they're screaming at me, I'm all in. Awesome. Right off the bat. The, whenever somebody says I'm into tool, like we're just going to become friends at that point. Totally good. Oh, man. I, I got to be honest, though. It, it's funny that you say that you look like somebody from NPR or something like that. Um, I judged a book by its cover recently, maybe uh, four or five months ago recently, where I was at a conference, uh, worked with this one company and blah, blah, blah. I needed to go talk to some guy who works with this company and needed to get something from him. Guy's very... Normal guy, normal looking dude, had an, a little slightly larger suit, you know, than he probably needed. Where like he didn't care. He was like, fuck it, I don't give a shit. And he's doing his thing. And I I judged this guy where I was like, what kind of nerd are you? You know, whatever. And we started talking about something. And uh, I was just like, hey, man, randomly, like, what kind of music are you into? Just like shooting the shit with him because we're standing there. He was like, oh, well, I like a lot of periphery and Meshuga and like starts going into heavy stuff. And he's like, and recently I saw this awesome new band at some tiny ass little club and everything changed. I looked at this guy like, what? In that blank mo in that blank moment, in that blank moment, you judged him and you're like, you know what? You're a different guy than I thought you were. Totally. And I caught myself because I was like, how dare I judge when I should just be open? You know, I love that sort of stuff. And I love when, you know, you can have that sort of magical moment where you're like, I'm going to judge the hell out of this guy. And he's like, but you have no idea that I love crazy technical math rock <laughs> or like metal music. Oh, man. So that's cool that you're uh, that you're into that. Why? Uh. Is that something that do you do you play music or are you just kind of a big metal guy? How does this all work in what you do? Well, so started when I was growing up back in the 70s and 80s. I had a 1976 El Camino, coolest car ever. And I worked for my own money and I said, you know, I'm going to get me a stereo in it. And I got a stereo that had a power booster and subwoofers and tweeters, and it was the best ever. And then I always liked music. So it was the cars. It was all kind of that stuff and it was loud. Then I was fortunate enough to have two sons who are now in their 30s. They became music aficionados. So when they came of age and started listening to stuff in the car, they'd say, dude, check this out. Check this band out. Tell me what you think of this. So really that's where a lot of my current music comes from is one of my sons will come over and say, dude, check this out. Listen to what I'm listening to now. That's where I get a lot of it. 
anything new uh, that you can share that he's been like, hey, dude, check this out? I'm thinking he, yes, there was, there is a country Western channel on Pandora that's name will come to me and it's a female. And imagine it's, it's a mix between Patsy Cline and Evanescence. And so that's what it's like. And it's just really good music, but very obscure. Is it called Spirit Box? I don't think so. At my age, it will come to me about halfway through this conversation or at 2.30 tomorrow morning. But if it does, I'll just interrupt you. <laughs> just, yeah. It, well, if it happens at 2.30 in the morning, uh, you won't be able to interrupt me. You can shoot me a text, though. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, so... Um, so the, the reason why I ask you about Spirit Box is that guy that I was talking to was like, yeah, I just saw Spirit Box, who is basically, it's a female-led metal band. Okay. And it's kind of like Evanescence meets Pat Klein in certain ways. So it's either Spirit Box or Ginger. Um, those are kind of the newer ones. We are now going on to a completely different topic than mindset and self-mastery at this point. <laughs> yeah, I, you know what? I can dance backwards in high heels. If that's where you want to go, I'm here for you, dude. <laughs> that's the way it should be man so uh well so that's the thing that people don't know about you but need to so thank you for bringing that up now tell me about your uh your little Saul Goodman situation that's going on here of uh thinking you're going to go to jail for a bit uh yeah so I'm going to give you a a law a story that unfolded over a long time and I'm going to boil it down into about a minute there was a guy that I worked with it was a client of mine that I trusted that I thought I'd become very close with. And he put me in a position where I either had to help him embezzle money or he would pull all of his business. That's it in 30 seconds or less. I made the bad choice, I helped him, and the consequences were, although brutal and almost burned everything to the ground, were absolutely purifying and looking back on it, probably the best thing that ever happened to me. Well, this is basically the rest of the episode at this point, because there's a lot in that. I mean, let's talk to us about your mindset in that space of going, well, I got two different options and both of them aren't great. Yeah, you know, so it's funny. We, we find ourselves in these situations, Nick, and I think the biggest problem, the biggest mistake we made is we think we are alone in that situation. We think that it is you and the person in front of you or you and the problem in front of you. And what I did is I thought I was alone. And when we are alone and when we don't turn to people, I don't think that's when we make very good choices. I know I'm painting with a roller at this point, but I think it's a truism. And I found myself self-isolated and made a decision, if you wanna be brutally honest, from a standpoint of being a six-year-old and thinking, if I don't do this, then this person is going to leave and it will be bad for my career. Did you have something that happened when you were a little kid? that you kind of tied back to? Yeah, so what happened was, is that I was fortunate enough to be adopted. I was fortunate enough to be adopted, and my adoptive parents knew my natural mother. They knew her, which was great, so I never had to do the whole, I wonder who my mom is, you know, drive across America, have a lifetime show on that. I knew who it was. But when you're a four, five, and six-year-old, and you're going between, you know, your mother's house and your soon-to-be adoptive parents' house, you kind of start to think maybe things you are doing, because as a five-year-old, the world revolves around you. You tend to think things you do are what drives other people's decisions. I can tell you after years and years and years and thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars of counseling, that's not the right way to think, 
but it's the way a lot of us do think, Nick. Yeah, you're totally right. I think most problems, I don't want to say 100%, but I'm up there at the 99 percentile, that they all come from childhood. There's some sort of trauma that we went through as a child that we haven't either processed through or haven't fully processed through. So can you boil down a bit what steps you took going through that past trauma and kind of figuring out, like, what do you do with that now as an adult? Yeah, so one of the things is you continue to work on it every day. It, it is not something, at least for me, Nick, that you say, okay, I'm going to go to counseling, and after six months I've done, check that off, and I'll never have to deal with that again. And I'm speaking for me and for nobody else. It is something I continually have to reassert and rethink about and recalibrate on. For instance, two or three weeks ago, I had a situation, very, very contentious situation in a case, and I was visiting with my wife, and I said, God, I'm just feeling I'm so much anxiety. And, you know, she's so patient, and she peeled away the layers of the onion, and she goes, you know, you're not six anymore. And I'm like, you know what? You're fucking right, I'm not. But it took that. So it's first off something you have to keep in mind, top of mind. But second, I think you need to surround yourself with and go seek good help. I have a theory that there are two kinds of people in this world, Nick. Um, and I I'm, apologize if I'm going to offend the others. I think there's people that need or should be in counseling, and then there are people that are in denial. And... I was fortunate enough to be able to get counseling and afford it, and it helped a great deal. Yeah, that, good points. Um, those people that would hear that are, are either not listeners of the show or they're not going to listen for very much longer because what we talk about on this is about actually getting the help. And some of that help comes from therapists, it comes from coaches, it comes from mentors, it comes from people that you work with, it comes from all over the place. Uh, there are certain people that can see somebody else's situation and go, oh, note to self, don't go down that path. And they can change that. But I don't, I don't think there's anybody in the world that doesn't have it all figured out. Nobody's perfect. So it does, just doesn't happen that way. But what do you do now, like daily, to be able to continue to work on that? Well, and so, for instance, I've got a coach I visit with every Wednesday. We're now every Saturday. I have been since the pandemic because it was just, you know, everything changed. Uh, it's something I continue to read about, something I continue to think about. I surround myself with like-minded people who are very much into self-awareness. I'm fortunate enough that I'm able to go on silent retreats with the Jesuits. So every year I go away for about eight or ten days into silence. And it's just fantastic. And so it's something I do daily. Um, I don't know if you can't see it right now, but so let me do this. So, yeah. So when I start to feel like I'm being beaten down and when life's little things start to pick at you, you know, like you're being pecked to death by a chicken, Nick, you know that feeling? And then your little voice starts saying, Nick, you're a failure. Nick, you suck. Nick, you can't do this. This is what I look at. Biggie Smalls. So it's a take, of course, of course, it's a take on Sandlot, but I'm a big Biggie Smalls fan too. And I just tell myself, you know what? You're killing me. This, this negative self-talk is killing me. Step back a bit. Realize I'm not six anymore. Man, yeah, that childhood trauma. That childhood trauma keeps coming up. I, I often wonder how many people... Yeah, but here's the deal, Nick, and I want to be very clear about this. This is not something where you go around and say, listen, 
I had a shitty childhood. Here's a newsflash. Most people had a shitty childhood. <laughs> Everybody did. Okay, mine was nothing near as bad as people that I know. It was nothing near as bad. But it's just what happened to you. It's not the question of does it happen to you? The question is, how are you going to deal with it? Really, how are you going to deal with it? And I think I think you can take it and make yourself a better version of yourself and also make sure that people in your life world don't end up being subjected to the shit you were subjected to. That's a good point. Uh, you know, you've got kids now. So your kids are are they your kids or are they adopted kids? No, I've got two sons. They would deny. There are days they would deny that I'm their father. But I was there for them. And here's here's something you talk about raising kids. So my wife and I decided when we had kids, we said, you know what? We don't know anything about parenting. We know how to make a kid, but we don't know how to do anything about parenting. So early on, we studied up a lot on parenting. We went to seminars, we read books, and it really put us in a position with a lot of people we knew that they're like, what are you, why don't you hit your kids? Why don't you spank your kids? And we're like, you know what? I don't think that really works. And so we found ourselves not on the outs, but disagreeing in fundamental ways with a lot of people on how we were going to raise our kids. But it was a decision we made and it was a very conscious and intentional decision, Nick. If only more people made that decision well before having kids. It's like people should have a test to be able to have kids instead of just the test being sex. What was the line? I think father of the bride, they're talking about the, the, having kids. And he's like, you know, any butt ream and asshole can be a dad, but you have to have a license to be a barber, which is true. You cannot cut people's hair without a license, but you can have kids. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, they should give out the license for kids. Uh, so growing up the way that you did, uh, with a unique experience of being able to go back and forth between your moms and your new adoptive parents, uh, I feel like there's probably a lot that's in that, that you had that all right, well, I was there and now I'm here. So how did you, how do you handle that being a father and showing your kids love and still kind of processing through that stuff? Cause you're right, you're not six anymore, but that's still coming up. Yeah, you know, I think when, when my sons were growing up, I was all about stability and all about routine because, you know, the deal was when you're a three-year-old, you do better with the routine. This is my impression, a four or five-year-old. So it was every night I would get home, we would try to have dinner around a certain time. You know, we would read stories, we'd play, we'd get a bath, we'd read a story, we'd go to bed. And I was all about just a routine to give them grounding and that they would know there's not going to be a lot of chaos. Because when I was growing up, there was chaos, just chaos all the time. So even as an adult, even as an adult, Nick, when I leave my office today, it looks like a surgical suite because I cannot stand clutter, can't stand it. And this is from when I was six years old. Now, do you think you've gotten to an OCD level with that or you had a nice balance? No, this is my personal space. Now in our house and raising, and you know, raising two sons that were 18 months apart, it looked like a, it looked like a disaster zone most days. Their rooms were just biohazards, but in my closet, in my closet, all my shit's straight. That's because that's where I like it. In my office, all of my stuff is straight. Now, without going through all of your childhood, 
Are there any major episodes or moments that stand out to you where you can look back and go, man, that was a moment that changed me? Yeah, a couple of them. One, I can remember graduating from high school. So this is 1979, back when, when dinosaurs were roaming the earth and the crust was still cooling. And so I graduated from high school and all of my buddies got cars or they were going on vacations and it was just lavish. So I remember graduating and there was an overnight party at a downtown hotel that I went to. I came home and I remember my dad was in the front yard raking leaves and I came home and he came over and shook my hand and said, congratulations, you have now met the minimum requirements for education in the state of Texas and slapped me on the back. And that was it. Okay, you, you got a high school degree. Another moment I can remember very, very vividly. So I was the youngest of five adopted. My oldest brother, who is now deceased, uh, was a highly decorated army officer. So I remember I'm in college, so it's about 81, 82. And I think I'm 10 foot tall and bulletproof. So we're at the house and he's home on leave, probably at Christmas. And I remember sitting in the little bathroom that was in the back of the house and he's brushing his teeth. And I'm going on and on about school and college and this and that. Now, this is a guy that started, got out of A&M like in 62. So he had been already been in the Dominican Republic. He had been in Vietnam. He had been in all these places. And I remember him listening to me and he spit out his toothpaste and said, you know, when you do something outside of 5071 Meadowlark, that was our house, come talk to me. And I'm like, damn, that's harsh. But it was true. It, it was really true, which taught me a lot about humility. So I got to tell you, those two things, like yesterday, Nick, I can remember. It's interesting. What do you think really stood out about your, your father just saying, cool, congrats, and moving along? Uh, you know, because he was one that it was always about you need to make your own way. He left home when he was 14, enrolled in, uh, enlisted in the Army and lied about his age. So you talk about a guy that was tough as shoe leather. That was my old man. And, and the message was really clear. Nobody's going to give you anything. Hard work is the coin of the realm. You treat everybody with respect. You fear nobody, but you respect everybody. And that was what I was brought up with. And if you wanted money, go hustle and work. If you wanted something, go get it. If you wanted to do something, that's on you. And so I distinctly remember growing up, I mean, I was fortunate. I grew up in an affluent neighborhood with my friends and everybody that got cars. My dad's like, you want a car? Yep. He goes, they cost money. That's what I hear. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a, it's a special relationship to have with, with your father in that sort of sense where there's a respect, um, which is different. Uh, I, I had some friends growing up that had loads of money. And I had other friends that had no money at all, like at all. And it was different to see how parents reacted with their kids and how they treated their kids and how even some of the super rich kids, their parents just gave them things because they're trying to buy them love. But there were a couple of them that were like, you know what? I know that you want to go get this and I have a lot of money, but I have a lot of money. So you need to go do the things to be able to create what you want. And they were like, fuck. All right. And they're better off for it. Abs you know, absolutely. It's funny. So remember my old man, when I come along at five, he is 50. So imagine yourself being 50, having a five-year-old. Okay. So I can remember that all of my buddies growing up, all of them would, um, 
want to go out and ride motorcycles. Okay. My dad's like, you are not riding a motorcycle. You're not doing it. And yet if I wanted to drink at the house, he let me, you want to sit here and drink beer, drink beer. You want to go out in the desert and shoot guns, go out in the desert and shoot guns. But by God, you're not getting on a motorcycle and you're never spending the night at somebody else's house. And nothing good happens after nine o'clock at night. Those I just remember growing up. So it was a juxtaposition where some of my friends, their parents would die if they knew they were drinking booze. And my dad was like, if you want to drink, drink here. So I can I can watch you and make sure you don't do anything stupid. Yeah, you can't watch you or watch the car that's driving by your bike to knock you off that bike. Or, you know, a 15 year old on a motorcycle. I think if you Google recipe for disaster, that's one of the top three pictures. That's my humble opinion. So are you kind of similar with your uh, with your sons that they can't ride a motorcycle? No. Well, in a way I was simply because what I do as a lawyer, I'm a civil defense lawyer and I defend personal injury cases. So I remember my sons came home and said, we want an ATV. I said, you're out of your mind. You're never getting an ATV ever. When those things flip, you're going to be killed. Dad, we want a we want a, a, a go kart. Unfortunately, I had a couple cases where people got really hurt in go karts. I said, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm just not. So yeah, unfortunately, I was a lot like that, maybe for different reasons than my dad. But yeah, if, if you would talk to them separately, they say I ruined their life in a lot of ways like that. Uh, I'm sure at the same time, they probably also love the hell out of you. I think I think if you got them in a weak moment, they would. That's interesting, man. There's uh, it's interesting the things that we can kind of latch on to that may have an effect because of the deliverance of it. Like your dad was like, you're not going to do that, but you can go do these things and be like, all right, cool. I can tell that you're uh, you're pretty high on this level about this thing, so I'm not going to go do that. Or maybe you push it a little bit. But it's interesting how some people turn that and and they use that on their own kids. Where they're like, well, this is what I was taught. And it's kind of the mindset area of it. You know, like I was raised this way, so damn it, this is how you're going to be. And it sounds like you've shifted some of that. Well, and what we tried to do was take the best of it. So my dad was very much, listen, hard work. If you want something, hard work is the way to go. So we raised our sons like that. Now, my mom, who was an artist, I mean, she was a hippie. She was a bohemian. All right. And she always told me, Michael, you are so smart. You can do whatever you want to do. This is before positive self-talk. Michael, if you want to go do it, you're smart enough. Go do it. I absolutely believe in you. I remember when I studied for the bar exam. Okay, so you study for six weeks to take a test that lasts three days, whether you're going to be a lawyer. So I get out of the exam the first day and she calls me. How'd you do? I said, I knew the answer to two questions. And then the next day she goes, how'd you do? I said, I knew the answer to one question. And then the third day I said, I'm not going to be a lawyer. And so then then you have to wait four months to get the bar exam results. And I'm like, Ma, I'm going to not be a lawyer. I think I'm going to have to go be a you know, something, I can't do it. She's like, Michael, you're going to be fine. You're going to be fine. When I passed it, she's like, I told you. So she never doubted. We tried to pick that up with our sons where we absolutely believed in them. And that was something she always did for me. Yeah, I, that's a powerful thing to believe in your kids. I think there's also balance, like all things. You don't want to be like, oh, my kid's the best kid in the world. He gets all the trophies. Um, you don't ever want to be like that. But I think that's also a good point where we, um, we kind of are on the side of either growth mindset or fixed mindset. I'm all about Carol Dweck. Yes. Yes. Big time. And some people will get in that spot. Yes. I've got a, her, her thing on my desk. Absolutely. Oh, you're the best. 
Yeah, and so we so true story. We are we have several family group texts that have like 27 people a piece in them, okay? And someone will do great on their science project. And then the text just blows up. And what it's funny, Liz and I, my wife and I, instead of saying you're so smart, I'm so proud of you, it'll always be like I can see you work really hard on that and you put a lot of work into it. Good for you. And it's a it's a different way of looking at exact dude, if it works, it works. Work it, yeah, exactly. Uh it's such a beautiful thing. And really when you think of that growth and that fixed mindset, how many people just err on the side of the fixed of like, oh you, you're super intelligent. You have all this intelligence. It's like no fucking most people don't. In fact, none of us really do. Right. Now just I think the question is, how hard are you willing to work for it? And what effort are you willing to put? What effort are you willing to put in for it? And if you don't want to put a bunch of effort to it, that's cool. But you're not going to get to where you need to be or you want to be. Yeah. So tell us, how did you get into uh, wanting to become a lawyer? Because that's not an easy thing to get into and then stick with. So I'm a I'm a sophomore in high school and I'm in government class and we're studying the judiciary. And our teacher says, OK, we're going to have a mock trial. Like, what is this? She goes, it's going to be a murder case. I'm going to choose one uh, student to be the prosecutor and one the defense lawyer. So I got chosen, volunteered, I don't know, to be the defense lawyer. And they gave you a case. They gave you something to work with. And I'm like, this is really interesting. And so I thought, you know what? I know a family friend who's a criminal defense lawyer, and I'm going to go talk to him. So I went and talked to him. I said, here's this case I've got. What do you suggest? And he started talking to me, and I was like, I dig this. Plus, I didn't have to do my geometry homework. I'm like, all right. And so I did it and I was hooked. And I knew from the time I was a sophomore that I was going to be a lawyer. Now, my old man was like, that's great. Good for you. You need to get a business degree in case you can't be a lawyer. So I got two college degrees in accounting and management just in case the law thing didn't work. But yeah, I knew from the time I was a sophomore in high school. That's pretty awesome, man. There are lots of people that think they know what they want to do when they're in high school and have no idea even in their 30s or 40s. Dude, it was serendipitous. And and I used to, you talk about judging people, I, I would hear people, you know, in their late 20s going, I don't know what to do. I'm like, how do you not know what to do? But then I realized I was just so fortunate that I glommed onto something that I truly enjoy, that people will pay me to do. And so I'm the luckiest guy in the world when it comes to that. Don't you love how that stuff lines up? You get to use your skills, do the things that make sense to you. But it took you taking steps to be able to do that. Now, tell us about the process that you went through to be able to not only go, all right, this is what I want to do, but to walk down that path and then manage your mindset during those really fucking tough times. So I graduate from the University of Texas at El Paso. Okay, Harvard on the border. Go Miners. And I'm thinking I'm the cat's ass, right? I'm almost got a 4.0. I'm one of the top 10 seniors. I get accepted to law school only because, only because I took the LSAT when I was still drunk and my scores were really shitty. But Liz's parents knew a lot of people in the Catholic Church in San Antonio, so I get accepted to St. Mary's. Never been to St. Mary's. I, I'd never been to San Antonio. So I go down there and I'm like, okay, I got this. I got the law school thing figured out. I knew how to do college. I can do law school. Great. So first thing you learned is they give you one test per class in law school when I went. So if you took five, te five classes, you took five tests, one at the end of the year for each class. I'm like, well, that's sort of weird, but okay. 
And so you would take your finals, let's say you're done the second week of December. Back then, again, uh, we were still coming out of the, the, uh, the dinosaur age. You would, if you wanted your grades early, you would, you would self-address a postcard and you address it to yourself and on the back you would put contracts or torts or whatever and you would wait for the grades. So the grades didn't come until February. So we are well into our second semester of law school, Nick, okay? We're back in and I go down and get my first grades. They come in, two or three postcards come in and I'm like, well, shit, I do not know what I am doing. At this point, I'm like out of a class of 300 and something, I'm like 280. I mean, I'm not in the basement, but I'm at the top of the stairs to the basement. I'm like, well, this is not going to work. What I'm doing something wrong. So I realized I got to change my game. So I realized, you know what I need to do? I need to record these lectures and listen to them afterwards and redo my notes and type them up because that's how I learn. And I was fortunate that I went from there to graduating three years later, number 12 in a class of 191. But it was only because the path I was on was not going to work out. Because you got to remember, when I graduated, I was married and already had a kid. And, you know, I thought, I've got to do better than this. And so I realized I had to work smarter and work harder and work differently. The old tools, Nick, although they were good in college, were no good in law school. Hmm. That's interesting that you had your wife and your kid, I guess, already as that why, where you're like, shit, I can't go backwards. We've got to make this thing happen. Oh, no. No, when I was studying for the bar, I would say, you know, I'd be lamenting. I'm just not do this. I can't do this. And my wife was like, yeah, you are. <laughs> no, you can. You are. You will. <laughs> oh, man. So it sounds like you've got a good support system with your wife as well. And you brought that up a little bit ago about being able to have the right people that are around you. So there are certain people that listen to this show that are like you and I. They're ambitious. They go after things. But they don't always have that that core group around them, maybe because they're kind of evolving and they're past that. So how, what kind of advice would you give somebody to be able to find that core group or that good group of people? First off, I think you've got to reach out to people. I think if you wait for people to come to you and say, hey, Nick, you look like you could really use some mentoring. That's never happened to me. So I was fortunate when I would go on these retreats and I would meet these priests or I, I would be out professionally and I would meet somebody. I would just say, hey, listen, I really, I think that I can learn a lot from you can I buy you breakfast? And that's how it always started with me. Can I buy you breakfast? Can I just visit? Can I ask you a bunch of questions? And maybe one time somebody kind of gave me the cold shoulder, but after 35 years of doing this, only one person has ever given me the cold shoulder. And it, when I was in my 40s, when I was in my 40s, I would always look to people in their 60s and 70s. Now that I'm 60 and turning 61, I'm starting to look back at some of the young guns and saying, listen, can I buy you breakfast? Because I need to really, I think you're onto something and I want to learn from you. So I, I think if you're going to do it, you've got to be a lifelong learner. But you have to go out and seek people. Seek people that are putting out into the world what you want to put out. And when you find those people, be bold. I remember, so there's a guy, you know, Greg McEwen? Wrote the book Essentialism. Great book. Great book. I read his book. I'm like, I will tell you how good, how 
good this book was. My wife had to attend a conference in Vegas. I went out with her. I spent a day and a half in the hotel room reading this book. That's how good it was. And I'm like, you know what? I dig what he's selling. I think he should be a speaker at our firm retreat. And everybody's like, are you kidding me? He's like a New York Times bestseller. He's not going to return your call. I'm like, okay. So I got in touch with him and he said, sure, I'll do it. So that's the kind of thing I'm talking about. Just ask. Yeah, that's a great point. So many people get afraid of uh, the bullshit in their own head. They're like, oh, I don't want to ask because what if I said this sort of thing? And if I was in that spot and I love that you said after 35 years, one person gave you the cold shoulder. Was there something about that person that you were like, this separates them from everybody else? There's, is there a reason why you think you got the cold shoulder from them? You know, I can't because I really didn't give it much thought. Because here's another thing I learned from my old man. You know, my old man was, he was always about the next thing. And if you, you know, he was in insurance sales after he retired from the military. And although he never said it, what I picked up from him was, I don't care if you tell me no, that's one step closer to my yes. And so I've had so many people tell me no. It doesn't bother me. That just means I'm one step closer to getting to the yes. So when that person said no to me, Nick, I didn't get wound around the axle because it wasn't going to do me any good man, I would have been shocked if you were like, yes, I remember exactly what this person was like, because that's the mindset to have where you're like, I don't fucking care. I'm moving along because the other people that you opened up to and that you asked out to breakfast, they were like, yeah, let's do this. And they gave you great wisdom. Oh yeah. And I tell my young lawyers all the time, when you're on the phone with a client, just say, Hey, listen, we've talked about business. Can I pick your brain for three minutes? So let's say that you're an insurance claims professional or you're a big wig at a trucking company you work with. And you've got a younger lawyer at my office that says, hey, Nick, we've, we've talked about the issue we want to talk about. Just off the clock, can I just pick your brain for about three minutes? What are the lawyers that you work with around the country, what are the three characteristics that you think set them apart? And what are the three things that are the characteristics of lawyers you will never use again? Dude, I do this all the time. If I'm talking with a new client, let's say you're a client and you're talking to me. One of the questions I'm going to ask you is, Nick, tell me what success looks like to you. What does success look like to you? And then what does successful relationship with your lawyer look like? How do you define that? Tell me what it looks like. Because you may say, you know what? I want a lawyer that's available 24 seven that drops everything for me. I'm like, okay, I'm not your guy, but it's good to know now. Yeah. Yeah. That uh, makes sense. Uh, and that's not just a lawyer thing. I, um, it's easy for me to jump into sales, but I think it's just a people thing and it's an expectations thing. Mm -hmm. It's all, and you know, it comes down to communication. We are problem. All we do in my business is we solve problems. That's all we do. We solve people's problems, some bigger and some smaller. And I'm always about communication. If you just pick up the phone and talk to people, trust me, there have been relationships, client relationships that I have damn near burned to the ground for something I did. But you've got that relationship and you call and say, Nick, here's the deal. We screwed this up. We're going to make it right. But I want you to know, do you, I can't tell you the number of relationships I have that have only been stronger. Well, you just built back your trust by falling on your own sword. Um, and that's a, it's a hard pill for people to swallow where they don't want to fall on that own sword and go, look, I fucked up. I'm sorry. I think there's a lot of kids that are raised that if you make a mistake, that's a reflection on you and you can't admit it. One of the things that has been so freeing as I get older, I'll be on a conference call with 12 people and somebody say, Mike, 
what about this? And I'm like, you know what? I have no idea. I have no idea. It sounds like a good idea. Let me get back to you. That is so freeing. The young lawyer, Mike, would think I've got to know the answer, so I may just make up some bullshit or kind of cobble together an answer. Much more, I think it's much more, gains you much more respect to say, you know, I have no idea. I've never thought of that. I don't know. Let me let me get back to you on that. Yeah, I I think that people are afraid to do that earlier in their careers. And then as they move along, they're they're so conditioned to just not do that. But once you get to that precipice where you're like, look, I don't fucking know, but we'll figure it out. And I got another question for you. Help me give me some more information about this thing. Because then you start getting stuff out of them. They're like, oh, this is great. Like he doesn't know it. He's not going to feed me some bullshit. That's a whole different story than you can tell. And I'm sure you've seen this where people are squirming. They're like, um, uh, here's some bullshit for you. Here it is. And you're like, where the fuck did that come from? So we, I do a lawyer. He's a dear friend. If you answer a question he didn't know, he would come back and answer a question you didn't even ask. You're like, hey, on this matter here, what, what are we going to do with this? You know, I don't know, but did you know that Pebble Beach is the oldest golf course in California? You're like... <laughs> no, I didn't know, but that's not what I asked. <laughs> Does he have a follow-up to that? Like, I understood. I didn't get it, so I asked you something different. <laughs> oh, that's funny. <laughs> oh, man, I, I love that sort of stuff. Um, I, I had a friend a long time ago that would always just pivot to something else. Like if you're talking about anything, like, oh, did you hear so-and-so got into a car accident? Yeah, speaking of car accidents, what are we doing for dinner? You're like, where the fuck did that come from? But he would do it all the time. Like whatever the thing was, he would just bounce off of it. Right, and then you know, you and I both know, and these are people that I don't think you want to keep in your orbit. No matter what you're talking about, they've always got the story. I call them toppers. You're like, hey, listen, I. I, you know what, this weekend I kind of had a scare because, uh, you know, my kid had a fever, and but everything's okay. You know what, my kid had a fever one time, 117, almost died. We had to airlift him on a jet from France, and it was amazing. You're like, you win. You win. <laughs> yeah, your kid is more sicker than mine. Way to go. Toppers. Toppers. All of I just, you, you have to. Oh yeah, everything you got, I can top that story. Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I think of um, I think of the significance-driven people. You know, there's like um, we can look at those people and almost say, hmm, I hope you, I hope you're all right. Like I hope you get through this because you don't need to top anything. You, there's no reason for it, but they try to be significant. You know. Well, I, so I do, I talk a lot about bullying in the law, and here's my theory. This is my theory. When you deal with people that are toppers or uber aggressive, to me, who's not a psychologist, that is a reflection you've got somebody who's incredibly insecure in themselves, in themselves. And so when I see that, I'm like, okay. Now the old me used to get pissed off about it when you would see a lawyer do that. But now I'm like, okay, I get it. Don't judge them because listen, I've done some stupid stuff too. But you're like, okay, I see where you're coming from. But if you come at those people in a certain way, you can really have deep relationships with them. Yeah, because they're looking for help. They're they're looking. They just they're afraid to say it. Yeah, and that's the old let's go for coffee. And you know, man, are you doing okay? Because 
you know, you seem to, to be a little bit wound up right now. And that's where vulnerability comes in. Because I got to tell you, if you can, if you can, if you can have, show yourself to be vulnerable, it's one of the, I think it's one of the strongest threads to a relationship is genuine vulnerability. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Look, you're over 60. I'm almost 40. And there are people that listen to this show that are just out of their teens and people that are in their 70s and 80s. We've all grown up a bit differently, but I feel like there have been moments where we all kind of have that like, well, fucking man up and just go do it instead of actually understanding what people are going through and being mindful of it. Exactly. And there was a part of me and you talk about this. So Richard Rohr is a, is a uh, Franciscan theologian. He has this great concept of the first the f two halves of life. And in the first half of life, we're trying to build our career. We're trying to be that bulletproof person. We're trying to climb the ladder, never admit we're wrong. And in the second half life, we realize, you know what? I don't know much of anything. Who I surround myself is the most important thing in the world. And I really got to take care of myself because nobody's going to come in and say, Nick, you've been burning the candle at both ends. Let us take everything from you right now. Yeah, that's why I'm laughing, because I I've thought that you've thought that most everybody in the world, I assume, has been like, you know, at some point it's just all going to get fixed. And I think there's a balance where, yes, you have to be faithful you have to be open to things being fixed and you have to be positive, kind of like what you're saying with your mom. But you can't also, uh, you can't be that asshole like that. Um, what's that joke with the people that are in a flood? They're on top of a roof and God sends them a helicopter and a boat. And then they get up there and he's like, you fucking kidding me? Like I sent you a boat, a helicopter. They're like, but, but now we're here. He's like, I know I tried to keep you there, but now you're here. And I think a lot of that simply comes with age. It really does. And, you know, having dealing with life's challenges because we are all going to get punched in the nose. All of us. And sometimes it's deserved. Sometimes it's not deserved, but it's going to happen. And and, it, and you and I both know it's not to see to sit and be pissed and go, you know what? Life just punched me in the nose. The answer is, OK, what am I going to do about it? Am I going to be that guy that's a victim? Right. Or am I going to be that guy that say, you know what, that sucked. What role did I play in that? What did I do to maybe create that situation? Because let me see what I did. <clears throat> Man, that's a good point. Well, it, it's been a kick in the pants. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. I think we could just keep going and going and going. Yeah, man. Well, you started things off with I'm a tool fan. So I was like, this is going to be great. Dude. Okay. So let me tell you, January 2020. My oldest son lives in Austin. My other son here, we go to the Tool concert and it's just amazing. Okay, this is January of 2020, right before the world goes off the cliff. And it was amazing. Then they circle back around to Dallas. I think it was March of 2022. They're coming back through town and I had a freaking trial and I could not go. I was so pissed off. Man, so is that the first and only time you've seen Tool, or have you seen them other times? No, I've no. That's the first and only time I've ever seen them. Now, my oldest son is like a fish fan. I mean, he goes to Tool concerts all the time, all the time. <laughs> yeah. Oh man, uh, I'm not quite at that level, but I think I've seen them upwards of ten times, seven to ten times, something like that. Whatever, Topper. 
whatever topper. I said one, you said 10. I get where you're coming from, Nick. The, re- <laughs> the reason why I'm bringing that up is I had on my bucket list to go see a perfect circle. Have you seen a perfect circle? I was listening to a perfect circle this morning on the way to work. Oh man. What album were you listening to? It was the one that Lilith, is that the name? Yes. Judith. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Uh, from Murder Noms. And I can, I can, I can think of the, uh, the beat and I won't do it though, because it would kill your audience ratings, but you, yeah. Oh man. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we should all go listen to a perfect circle and tool and basically anything Maynard. Just go listen to it. Uh, anything Maynard. And you know what else came up on my, uh, playlist this past weekend, this predates you probably 38 special. Ooh, I dig 38 special. That does kind of predate me a bit. Any band that had two drummers, dude, that was legit. I don't know why you need two drummers. Cool. Are you a Genesis fan? Yes. Phil Collins, huge Genesis fan. Huge. They had two drummers for a minute. I tell you, something else that I listened to, I don't know, two or three weeks ago was Fleetwood Mac Rumors. Dude, I wore, I wore that shit out in 1979, 1980, whenever it came out. The cars, mm-hmm, all that stuff. Man, that's good stuff, man. Well, hey, we could sit here and shoot the shit about music for hours and hours. I know we could. Uh, I appreciate you being on. Hey, why don't you tell us where people can connect with you? Yeah, absolutely. Sure. I'm on LinkedIn uh, at Mike Bassett. Uh, my website for my book is called themaninthedditch.com. Our law firm is thebassettfirm.com. So reach out to me if you want to go have coffee, virtual or real. And I'm always happy to interact with people. Awesome, man. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on. Appreciate your time. Thank you very much, Nick. I really enjoyed being here. Thanks for having me. Another great conversation on today's episode of the Mindset and Self Mastery Show. So, what did you think of the show today? I'd love to hear your thoughts and check out the Instagram or Facebook page to join the conversation. If you enjoyed the episode, please jump over to iTunes and subscribe, rate, and leave a five star review. It helps us be found and helps others be healed. If this episode opened your eyes, made you think, or smile at all, then I'm sure it'll do the same for your friends. Check out the show notes for more info from today's episode and check out other episodes on the mindset and self show.com as well as our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and look up the mindset and self mastery show. Thanks again to our incredible guests for being real, honest, and vulnerable with us today. And I'd like to thank our sponsors, the manly club and the powerhouse men brotherhood men. You consider yourself to be a powerhouse man. The criteria for becoming one is simple. Live with virtue and do good work. You see, a powerhouse man builds his life. He doesn't settle for it. He attacks mediocrity at the root, and that's exactly what we do in the Powerhouse Men Brotherhood. Visit powerhousemen.com. That's P-O-W-E-R-H-O-U-S-E men.com. And most importantly, I'd like to thank you, Thank you for hanging out with us today. Your support means the world to us. And with that, remember, your mindset matters, and so do you.